Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And we haven't released a podcast in a couple weeks, and I'll just say that what is astonishing me is that um, ministry is good and hard, and I, I just... That's all I can say at this point We've in my life. had a few things going on. Is that um, I just, you know, no matter, no matter how much you think you know, you don't know. And, um, yeah, so. Yeah, when you're genuinely seeking to lead people, there are seasons that are smooth sailing. And then there are times when um, it gets hard, really hard really, really hard all of a sudden, and you, um, you've got to summon lots of energy and focus and strength to walk through that season. Yeah, I think it, what is just interesting about those seasons is that they just usually, um, like, I guess I always know when I'm in a really difficult season, a season that's really challenging me, um, but I never, <laughs> I never feel like, oh, I'm in a really easy, smooth sailing season right now. Like, let me enjoy it, right? <laughs> so I just, um, anyway. That is yes. fascinating to me. Um, yeah. Wow. So, okay. Uh, ministry is hard. That's all I have for astonishment right now. How about you? What's astonishing you? Well, I'm changing my mind about something that I've been critical of, fairly critical of over the past few decades, and uh, that is... In the African-American church, in the historic black church, uh, there's a history of holding revival services. And um, whether fall or spring, churches will pause and you know, have these midweek services, invite preachers, and call them revivals. And my criticism has been that it's just, it's very, uh, it had become very kind of perfunctory. Uh, this is just a thing we do every year. Um, and revival historically and historically biblically implies something really serious that um, that something is wrong in and among the people of God and that we recognize it we recognize things are not right not that things are not well in the world but things are not well with us we are not well. We are not right. And so, biblically speaking, a revival, seeking a revival, is about turning to God in order to um, be renewed. There is an acknowledgement that, right, in the word revival, that something needs to be revived. Something at one time was vibrant and viable, and now it has kind of wilted and so uh, there is this acknowledgement that we're in a bad place and we don't know how to fix it and only God can and so we must turn to God that's that's the that's kind of biblical roots of a revival but over the centuries it become okay this is the thing we do every year put it on the calendar because um, that's kind of what we do and uh, last week, I was asked to preach a revival service at a church in our area, um, and uh, really grateful 
to be invited because normally I say no to those invitations. I thought their theme was simple, yet as I, I, I took a walk one day last week and I was just meditating on their theme, uh, which, was, um, which was about hope. I was like, these people have, I think they've heard from the spirit that they're, this is not just another thing on the calendar for them. Like they, they are sensing that we need this fresh infusion of hope in these days when people are tired and worn out and the church isn't doing very well. And um, I walked away, I left that service thinking, okay, this is a tradition that I've been critical of that we should bring back. Yeah, I, I would say um, I have a different sense of what revival means. And interestingly, um, as a white person, my the church I served in Boston, which was a multi-ethnic church, they did revival every year, um, which was an interesting kind of cross-cultural influence. And I, and I didn't super understand it either. Um, but when I understand it now, I mean, obviously revival can be because the church is in crisis or something's really wrong. But I also think to have a rhythm of revival and, and just an, an understanding that, um, even if sometimes you don't feel like you need it, you need it. That really, it is about, I think, tending to the flame, like, like coming back to the, the ground zero of what is ultimately true and why are we here and what is what is the the thing before which every other thing is negotiable but not this and um I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast but um it just reminds me that so my my oldest daughter my oldest two daughters both have braces have had braces my middle daughter just completed her treatment Um, my oldest daughter completed her treatment during the pandemic and when you finish getting braces, immediately they give you clear retainers and they say, hey, you got you have to wear these retainers. Um, really, they say forever. You have to wear them at least overnight for the rest of your life. Well, my oldest daughter didn't do it. And so even though she spent years in very painful and very expensive orthodontic treatment, Um, because like then her teeth were straight and beautiful. And then because she didn't submit to the discipline of putting on the retainers, like over time, they're not back to where they were before when she started, but they are not like, it's just, and I think that in a spiritual community, it's kind of like the same thing, like without an awareness, without intentionality, we just begin to make assumptions about ourself and about our spiritual health that like we're always okay and you don't notice your own drift you don't notice your own slide and so I think like I think it's not healthy to have anything that's just like well this is on the calendar and we do it because we do it and that's it e- even weekly worship right like we we have to understand what our why is about that and I don't think that it would be healthy I don't think any churches do this but I don't think it would be healthy to artificially enter into a sense of like, okay, 
everything is a crisis. And so we have to sort of, you know, like pretend on Good Friday, we don't know what's going to happen on Easter. Like, you know, to, to manufacture a crisis or a sense of despair that isn't real. Um, but I do think having a sense of knowing like, hey, we know ourselves as humans. We have a sober understanding of just the unique um, challenges and risks of being spiritual people together on a spiritual journey and how the enemy of our souls is really good at his job. And so just to know that revival is kind of like almost like the clear braces that you put on once a year to say, hey, let, let's recalibrate. Let's make sure that some of our deepest held values are not getting the edges shaved off of them like imperceptibly, but, but steadily. And so, you know, how can you enter into that season of revival free from a sense of existential angst, right? Like there's, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not performing like the prophets on Mount Carmel to the, the you know, to their idol. Um, but I am coming and just sort of submitting and surrendering myself and collectively as a community to the Lord. And once again, saying, we're choosing this day who we serve and we know that there's no us in them. It, there's not like our prone, our hearts are prone to wander. And so um, we are both drawn to the way of Jesus and re- repelled by it and um, coming into that space. Cause I know, you know, you and I have both been through a transformation process in our communities. You've been through several but I'm Ching. And one of the major questions, yep. One of the major questions that is like the big, big wrestle point that is really, I think the breaking point that often either ends the process or leads to new life is this question of, well, who is the church for? Is the church for the people who are here or is the church for the people who are not here? And that's the foundational question. And like every time I present that to a group of leaders at the Grove, I'm reminded of how it felt when that was presented to us as a group of leaders from different congregations, when the consultants we worked with came and said that to us. And, you know, we were like, okay, well, obviously, you know that you can't say the church is for us and not for the outsiders. That can't be the right answer. But, you know, when they say like the church is for the people who aren't here yet, and you're like, no, 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 no. It has to be for both. Like it's for both. It's for both. And, um, the reality is it it is it is for both the people who are here and for the people who aren't here yet it is for both but if the leaders of the congregation are not really constantly seeking the lord for how are you calling us to reach out and serve the folks who are at the center of your heart but at the edges of our community like if if we're not consistently asking that question as leaders then what the desires and comfort levels and preferences and needs of the people in the community are is different than the desires and comforts and needs of the people outside of the community. And the people outside of the community aren't in it to advocate for themselves. And so you just percept, you know, you you do this painful work of transformation to like straighten your teeth and to like really understand like what does a healthy body look like and what does it look like to know that we will be served and held and loved and cared for by the Lord as we, in faith, turn out to say, here I am, Lord, lead me, Lord, send me, 
and and we get that right and we experience flourishing and then it's just so easy to just start like turning back and turning back and turning back and turning back and and then you don't even know that it's really happened until one day you try to put on that retainer and it doesn't even fit your teeth anymore and and so i think you know revival these periods of saying to the whole community kind of like Joshua in the in the covenant ceremony once a year of saying like every year we're coming back to this point like why are we here how did we get into the promised land what promises did we make to God and what promises did God make to us and how and how can we just not not drift and i think revival is such a really healthy thing when communities can understand that this is what it's about it's not about really saving the souls of some kind of anonymous it's like it's our spiritual checkup it's our well check and sometimes we discover big problems and can correct them before they're too late sometimes we don't yeah i i hear what you're saying and i think there's a lot of truth in it and um i, I think in a, in a mainline protestant context yeah. um because we are so christianity from the neck up yeah that if we don't if we don't feel it then it will be perfunctory if we don't yeah. have a sense of of real need and a kind of holy desperation then most likely we will simply go through the motions i'm thinking of you know that place where the psalmist says, as the deer longs for right. flowing streams, so my soul longs for you. Um, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Right. And I think where we fall short in mainline Protestant Christianity is that if we, if we, if we think the right things, then we must be right. right. And um, I've found over the years that revival services often miss that kind of uh, again holy desperation um, no I think you're right I mean I don't mean to suggest because you and I definitely agree that neck up Christianity is killing the life sure. out of there are no um, <laughs> there's no decapitation in the body of Christ I I wonder and I'm thinking the retain and in the retainer illustration is it's really good. It's really helpful. And I'm thinking that that might be one's daily spiritual disciplines because the retainer mm -hmm. is daily. The revival is when you try the retainer on and you and you see it doesn't fit. Yeah. You're like, oh, well, I've and really I, drifted. Yeah, and I think like but the other interesting thing is thinking about like, okay, we do have this moment uh, in theory, <laughs> um, this gift of the practice of Lent and beginning with Ash Wednesday and that that is kind of, but that is very individually, it is focused on the individual and that's not bad, it is not. Um, but I, revival can be the, the collective. The used in the church is when it comes to the individual, that's renewal. When it comes to the church, that's revival. And then if revival is genuine and sustained, it spills out into the community and that's called an awakening. Yeah. Well, I do think, you know, it's just, I think it is interesting because when I said I don't think you want to manufacture ontological dread, but I did not mean. Oh, I think you're right. 
but I, but I think you're all right. There's, there's something in between sort of being on autopilot and, and presuming that like, okay, Lord, like we belong to you and you're lucky we're here and we know we're good. Right. I mean, there's something about sort of approaching that moment in the way that the seven churches would have approached the risen Lord at the beginning of the letter to revelation, right? Like they're really these, these, um, believers who are literally risking martyrdom every time they gather. And so, and seeing themselves in contrast to those in their communities who were seeking to, to kill them, to those that, you know, committing violence in the name of the state, you know, and, and it's just so easy to measure your faith with the ruler of your perception of other people's faithfulness and righteousness instead of measuring your own righteousness in the context of, of Jesus. Because I think, you know, one of the things that really helped me flip it and, and, and overcome my own resistance when, when we were initially in this transformation process and I had a lot of just uh, defensiveness and anger. And I mean, you're nodding because it's funny because it's such a mild way of putting <laughs> the rage that I walked around with for well nigh a year. Um, but it really was like, because I was so offended that people, these consultants would dare to come in and not just give us like practical, here's a good idea to try, but to, to really, um, do a, do a holy rebuke and to say like, no, actually you have things to repent of as a pastor and as, as communities, you're not, you know, you're not perfect. And I, I, you know, and I was so easy, I would have never claimed to be perfect or that my community was so perfect, but I it was so easy for me to just only think about the community I served, like to compare them, like, well, this is the 98 ways that we're better than elevation. And this is the, you know, 54 ways that we're better than the people who go to brunch and, you know, whatever. And so to be called to say like, okay, but if you're finished measuring how much better you are than people you look down on, would you be open to knowing, like really measuring yourself up against Christ's vision for the church? If in fact, you do aspire to be Christ's church, and looking at um, the letter to this, the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, and realizing, like, oh, wow, um, those folks, even I, in my pride and ego, have to admit, had a had a tougher call, <laughs> had more difficult circumstances within which to be church than I do, seeing as you know they might be killed at all times. And Jesus still had words of discipline and judgment for them. And so if they had things to work on, then yeah, probably I could just like expand my mind to recognize that while I know that I'm loved and I know that I'm accepted and I know that God likes me and I know that God sees the things that I do well and honors them. Also, the Lord has some things um, to say to me and to the community I serve. And I think like in that way of revival, just being like, hey, maybe the world can't judge me, but Jesus definitely can. And I, and not only can, but like I welcome that because I believe that the words of judgment from Jesus are, are, are good and bring life. Um, so yeah, I think that's you're making me want to plan a revival. Well, you know, year. I have been thinking about that. Yeah. Um, but you got to you got to do it in the fall because you can't do it in the spring. Because oh yes, absolutely. 
Yes, you can definitely. There are fall and spring revivals, especially as a lead up to Easter Sunday. Ah, what better time? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I'm tired. Um, so what are you thinking about? Well, we were saying on the walk. Oh, that's right. Um, run. The, thank you very that's much. Right. That's right. <laughs> That's true. We we are we are um, users of the Couch to 10K app, and um, some of us are more reluctant than others of us. But what are you trying to say? I'm saying some of us are more reluctant than some, others of us. There's only two of us. <laughs> I don't know, understand. I'm trying to protect the the, uh, the guilty, the innocent. Yeah. Um, but I we were talking about how a clip from a an interview um, from, a I think, a podcast called Heart to Heart. It's the actor Kevin Hart's podcast, um, which was done in spring of 2022, but a clip from it has just resurfaced. Um, and, and we were talking about this and um, that we're saying it's really not about the particularities of the people in the clip, but how it um, is a springboard to sort of consider our values as followers of Jesus and how they might be countercultural or not. Um, so the clip is Kevin Hart interviewing the um, mogul. Would we call him a mogul? He's definitely more than a musician. Sure. <laughs> um, the billionaire, Jay-Z. And he, and they were talking about... Mr. Beyonce to you. <laughs> I mean, one of the things, the articles, I, I was surprised. I told you I was surprised that I think of Beyonce as just much more famous than her spouse, Mr. Carter. Um, but, but she's worth only 540 million. Oh, I'm sorry. I, she's not, she's worth infinitesimal amounts as every human being is, but her, her assets are only 540 million and he is 4.5 billion. So um, in terms of money, he's much wealthier than she is. Um, and they, they, the two of them, Kevin Hart and Jay-Z, were talking about the way that being so wealthy complicates family relationships mm-hmm. and um, just how people interact with you. And um, there's, there's a lot of their conversation that was very particular and nuanced to what it is like um, becoming coming from a historically and generationally marginalized community and then having that kind of financial success. Um, and so that that's unique to that conversation, but not to ours. But the example that um, Jay-Z gave, or they were talking about like going home for family gatherings and just wanting to come home to their families to, to find like solace and comfort and shelter and how then when they go home, um, they, people from their families will come up to them and ask them for, um, investments like, and, and Jay-Z gave an example, which might have, it's, it's unclear whether it was a hypothetical example or an actual, um, thing that had happened to him. But, you know, a cousin comes up to you and says, you know, can you, can you invest $4,800? I have a business idea and it will, it will make 2 million. And, um, and Jay-Z was saying that his answer was like, was no, that's not how money works. That's not how opportunities work. You don't just get things for free. 
Um, and then, so anyway, this this clip has resurfaced and, and generated a lot of controversy because people are pointing out that, um, A, the, the context of having as much money as Jay-Z has, that request for an investment of 4800 is the equivalent of making $50,000 a year and your cousin asks you for a dime, right? So 4800 sounds like a lot of money to you and me, and it is a lot of money, but in the context of all of the money that Jay-Z, or in, any billionaire, right? Like I'm not trying to necessarily, but there is this sense about, well, it just is inter- opens up a really interesting conversation about like, what does it mean to be community? What does it mean to be family? And what is a, um, what is a good gift? What is enabling? What, what is deserved? Like who deserves to be invested in and who doesn't? And I think like, as I listen to the clip, I have, um, just real, I I can have real, I mean, not that it matters, but can have real compassion to, um, people who walk back into their families and just feel like, oh, I'm an ATM machine. Like no one cares about who I am anymore. And that this money and my success has really become a gulf between me and the people that I just want to be human with. And so I, I can really, you know, hold space for that. Um, but also, you know, this idea that um, it is it is unacceptable to ask for an investment, um, you know, and that, and that it's irresponsible and somehow enabling or infantilizing to give an investment. I think that those are values that come out of, um, a, a, a hyper-capitalist culture that basically says, Hey, people have what they deserve. And so if you give someone something that they need but didn't earn, you're actually harming them, not helping them. Because a capitalist society says, hey, the free hand of the market is fair and impartial and it gives everyone what they've earned. So if someone doesn't have something, it's because they haven't earned it. And then giving them any resource is just a waste um, because the market has already shown you what they can handle. And so I think... You know, I think those that those cultural values, again, kind of like the, you know, your teeth getting crooked slowly, they just kind of creep into our understanding of what's responsible and what's reasonable. And we don't often even question like, well, why do I think that? Like, why do I think that I'm being exploited if I give this money? Why do I? And, and just, you know, whatever people's values are, around their money, you know, they, people both by the law of, uh, human culture and by the law of God, like people are responsible for what they do with the resources that the Lord has entrusted to them. But I do think it's important as believers and I don't, um, and I don't know if Jay-Z is a believer, but just as a believer listening to this story, it's important for us to recognize like, well, is what the world calls a good investment the same thing as what Jesus calls a good investment? And what is the difference? And how how would I know? Um, and I and I also just think you know that story. I, I I was reading some articles about it, and someone said like that story is one reason why um, the idea 
um, that the idea of a conservative political ideology can be problematic because that one of the fundamental assumptions is government shouldn't get involved in charity, like people should help people, communities should help people, families should help families. But that doesn't work when people are taught that it's a sign of weakness or waste to risk or invest in people. And that the only people that are really worthy of investing in are the people who don't have a need to be invested in. Um, so I, I, you know, I just, I, I thought it was a really interesting and memorable example to really be thinking about. So what, you know, what would, what does having the mindset of Christ change how we walk into conversations when people say, I, I have a need and you have the capacity to meet my need in the context of the kingdom of God is it offensive when someone asks, hey, you have a resource that I need. Will you help me? And in the context of the kingdom of God, how do we weigh when we say yes and when we say no? And how might we sometimes be reflexively saying no based on the values of the culture that we think is fallen instead of digging deep and saying there might be reasons that we say yes to something that would seem foolish or wasteful in the eyes of the world, but not in the kingdom, because certainly Jesus seemed foolish and wasteful to people. So that's what I'm thinking. Is that all? That's sorry. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. A couple of things come to mind. First of all, if I only get what I deserve, I'm in real trouble, uh-huh. right? The, there's a, a, a place in the Old Testament that says, that asks, what do you have that you did not receive? Right. Can I just like interject? But I do think as Christians, we are so comfortable thinking, oh, spiritually, I get what I don't deserve and no one spiritually from God should get what they deserve from God. No one should get God's judgment. Like I'm so grateful for grace, but then we draw a line and say, some things are spiritual and some things are material. And when it comes to material things, people should get what they deserve or you can't give people. So that, I I think that's really, that's the question for Christians. There are things we believe in spiritually that we think that's a very Western dualistic mindset. Correct. And, and it doesn't take into account the reality that the main message of the incarnation is everything spiritual and everything that you have has been given to you. And, and, uh, the scripture says, even when you work hard and gain wealth, do not say to yourself, I have done. You must always remember that, you have received from God. The, the second thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, with this example of the cousin asking for $4,800, my response might be, depending on what the business idea is, hey, I'm not investing in your business, but I'm investing in you. Mm-hmm. So I'm giving this money to you, even if I think the business idea is just trash. I want you to try. I want you to, because ultimately, unless this person, unless you know this person to be um, someone who's going to do something immoral, whatever, with the money, uh, 
then you are giving them an opportunity to try something. It may totally fail, but they will learn something and in time they'll try something else. Yeah, I mean I think like one interesting thing is to think about that story and think of the context of the of the rich fool, right? Cuz I feel like one way that the farmer with the abundant harvest could have justified his choice to build bigger barns is just to say like, well, there's no place that this resource is safer than under my care and control, right? And so you know, the the idea that there might be anything else that you should do with your excess other than keep it in case of a rainy day. I mean, that's just so countercultural to us. And again, I think that we we read scripture through the eyes of the culture and not the culture through the lens of scripture, um, because I don't think that we recognize like we read the parable of the rich fool and we're like, yeah, that rich guy was foolish. What a dummy. God, if you ever make me rich, I won't do that. And we don't understand that we're all the rich fool. I mean, to your point, none of us have anything that we have earned um, because none of us earned the right. Or deserved. To, right. None of us deserved to be born. None of us, right, deserves not to. I mean, but I think about, you know, that famous speech that Obama gave that people hated so much when he he gave the you didn't build that speech and and people were so deeply offended by that idea of um, being of having earned wealth because of investments that people who had gone before have made in your life, and you know being resentful of I don't want to pay for other people's anything. Um, I mean that's just very and that's very against the Western dual dualistic pull yourself up by your bootstraps or suffer till you learn your lesson way of thinking uh, last night I had a meeting with church elders and for our opening devotional time we looked at that place in the New Testament where Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish we didn't look at the whole account but just the last part that said you know after Jesus fed the multitude with this little bit of bread, two fish, that he told the disciples to collect the fragments, what was left over, and they filled 12 baskets full. 12 baskets of fragments of leftovers. And um, I was reading, and, and I wish I could remember her name, uh, this uh, Native American writer um, she says um, that we ought to pause and collect the fragments, the leftovers of our day, our lives, the church, the country, because we live in a society, we live in a country that is very wasteful. I think yeah. um, America throws away a third of a pound of food per person per day. I mean, I think it's more than that. I think I've read statistics that say like up to a, a third of everything every American buys in food is wasted. A lot of waste. So she says, just in your mind, start to collect the fragments. And that ought to do two things for you. One, a sense of gratitude. Two, a sense of how wealthy you really are. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and when you can begin to see yourself living in a world of abundance and not in a world of scarcity, then you have the freedom when someone asks to give, not according to your values, you have the freedom to pause and ask, Lord, should I do this? And you can begin to discern sometimes yes, sometimes no. And in my own life, I find that there are many times when the yeses and the nos of giving don't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. But I do it because I have a sense in the moment that this is what the Lord wants me to do. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's really interesting just in our struggle with how do we take the Bible seriously that, you know, one of the verses that we rarely struggle to take seriously is where Jesus just flat out says, give to everyone who asks of you. Yeah, that's, wow. Yeah. I mean, I... I mean, whatever. And I just preached a whole sermon on how Romans 13, 1 to 7 doesn't mean what it thinks it means, right? So I, I'm not, I, I'm, but I'm just saying like, we don't even, like, I don't feel like we even wrestle with what does it mean? Yeah. Maybe, I mean, I don't think it does mean literally anybody that asks you for anything, you have to give it to them. I don't think it does mean that. But I also think we shouldn't just throw those words away like they're garbage without really wondering well, what does it mean when there are times when we could do something and we don't, either because we've made a calculation that, well, there won't be enough for me if I do this, or that would be wasted if I do it, or that, you know, I I, I do think, though, having a shift, I mean, it's a fun, it's a worldview question of do we believe that creation is uh, not good and fast degrading. And so we are on a sinking ship and we are, we have to do what we can to distribute limited resources, um, as, as wisely as possible. Or do we believe the witness of resurrection that says the world was created good and has been redeemed, and the kingdom is here, and is coming, and our God is a God of redemption and abundance. And that changes how we calculate, you know, what we give and what we keep, and what seems wise, and what seems foolish um guy i just was reading a quote that somebody had pointed put up like by richard Rohr, and he said like there there's two paths of liberation that we're called to and and some of us are called to be liberators like moses was which is to go to people who are oppressed and to tell them that the lord is setting them free but the second path and the more difficult path is to be called to go to people who are, who, who think they're free (laughs) and to tell them that they are oppressed. And that's what Jesus did, right? Like Jesus went to people, the people who are like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're here. I can't wait to just throw off everything about this life and follow you, whatever it takes. I'm in it. Those were the people who knew they were oppressed. And, and the people who were deeply resistant to Jesus were the people who were like, 
what are you talking about? Like I am, if I'm not on top, I'm on my way up. Like you are taking something good for me that, you know, we, we cling to our chains and this idea that God isn't good enough for everyone and God won't take care of me if I'm faithful to God beyond reason. Like those are messages that we're getting from the culture, I think quite explicitly. Like there's a time and a place for these spiritual values. And then you got to get serious and you got to get real and you got to put those values up on the shelf and think um, rationally, which means conform to this world. So I don't mean, again, like I feel sort of bad talking about in the context of Jay-Z because I do think there's real uniqueness um, to this, to just looking at it within the context of like vast wealth inequality and injustice. But I also just think it's interesting that when you say that's not how money works, that's not how investment works, what you are saying is in the in the world where all the systems have been formed by white supremacy, you don't just invest in people because they have an idea. You you evaluate them according to the agreed upon standards by the people who hold all the capital. And then you invest in the people who you see as worthy and liable to give a good return on investment. And we know that the ways that our, our cultural conception of who's a good risk and who's not, I mean, those are, those are deeply flawed. Um, and it's just interesting that even when there's a system that has been really destructive to us and our people, it's really hard I know, who am I saying our, but (laughs) it's just, we internalize things deeply, all of us. Um, So I think it's so, it's just really interesting. Yeah. And it's challenging when you come out of certain communities, uh, when you're in certain cultures, when you feel an obligation um, to your people to help. I'm sure there is this internal conflict of, if I give this, is it really helping? And my response to that is, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. A, a sower went out to sow seed, and some seed fell on good ground, and some seed fell on bad ground, and that's how it is. But at the end of the day, um, I am not, um, I'm not at some loss that I can't recover from if I give you this thing. And so, well, I also just think we are tempted to decide whether something was a good and a investment or a bad investment based on what the results are, right? Sure. To say like, well, if you give this guy that money and he does start a $2 million business, then that was a good investment. But if you give that guy the money and he doesn't, then that was a bad investment. But but if we're evaluating the the choices that we make on the basis of our values, then all of a sudden it's a different calculus, right? So if your value is give to everyone who has need, or if your value is generosity, or your value is, you know, where you started from, which is like, I'm investing in you, and I think that you're worthy. And I I see that you live in the context of a world that does not at all say that to you, then whatever the outcome, the visible outcome of that investment is, you might still say, well, this was a good investment, because 
it, it was a manifestation of my values and my values of the, of the kingdom of God. Like you, you could look at Jesus on the cross and say like, God, that was a terrible investment because you poured out the precious blood of the perfect savior in front of a howling crowd of people who believed that violence won and that he was a blasphemer. Like how could you waste this preciousness of Jesus on this unworthy world and these unworthy people, like maybe Jesus should have died for whatever the Marys who were faithful to the end. But, but why would you waste goodness on these people who, you know, that God's grace in the short term by natural human calculations has been wasted on the majority of people ever been invested in i remember in my 20s i had a really bad problem with buyer's remorse like it was really bad um and i would i would just go shopping for things all the time and get home i mean and you know there's that initial thrill of mm -hmm. buying the thing and then you get it home and I would feel terrible. And an older, wiser, deeply spiritual person said to me, um, you know, you're enough, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I was like, what, what are you talking about? And that started a conversation because it, it wasn't instant. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. It took me a while to see the disconnect between how I was spending my money and my own personal spiritual values and my sense of self. Mm -hmm. So if you had asked me about you know, who I am and what I think about myself, it would have been all positive. But the right. reality was I was spending money I was buying things because underneath, I didn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's it's true when we, the way we give money says something about our values that we just can't see in the moment. Right. I, I mean, I think it is really interesting that Jesus talks about money. A lot. more. I think, I mean, I have read things that have argued that it's more than any other, um, you know, and certainly the Christian church in America, I don't think talks about money enough or well. And I think that often when we do talk about money, it's either support this institution um, or sort of, I, I think a, a twisted, um, you know, a twisted sell on generosity, which is like, oh, if you give this money, you'll get more money. And so I think to be able to say like, no, this is what, what every, Every gift we have from God, including the money that our culture tells us we've earned, is every gift that we have from God, we get to choose how we will invest it. And if we will invest it by kingdom values or by culture values or some hybrid in between that will say, like, I'll make an investment in kingdom values, but but really only if it doesn't make me look foolish or wasteful in the eyes of the culture. Um, so I, you are looking at your phone because you got to go. And, and we said we were going to be short, so well. we, we did it.
You got to go. I, I do need to pick up yeah. my child from school. But real quick, what are you preaching again this Sunday? Um, so I know we, you're in a series. And... Yes. So we're in a series called You Heard It Wrong, and we're looking at sort of key um, passages in Scripture that have um, have been historically um, deeply misinterpreted, in my opinion. So um, are you um, standing in front of the congregation and saying... You have heard that it was said, <laughs> no, but I, I say unto you. I am not. I'm not. Although I will say really quickly. So my, so our image for this, which I love so much, is like this infographic image of, you know, the juice boxes that kids <laughs> have. And that like normally, like if you don't know, if you've, it's been a while, like the straws have like a little bendy part mm-hmm. um, so that so they form kind of like an L once you take them out of the plastic wrapper. And most of us, what we do is just like put the straight part in and then the bendy part so that the the part that is um, parallel to the, you know, there's the vertical and then the horizontal part. Mm-hmm. So the horizontal part is at, out of the box and the vertical part goes straight down. Um, and there's this infographic that shows that that's actually the wrong way to do it, that you're supposed to put the part that can, like the, the crossbar of the L down at the bottom so that you can get into the corners of the juice box and drink all of the juice, right? So the infographic for you've heard it wrong. It's just the picture of the juice box with the norm with a quote normal way with an X by it and the correct way with a green check mark by it, which I love because I just feel like it my my understanding is that the the common accepted understanding of these verses that we're looking at is just exactly the opposite of how I think they were intended to be understood by us, except jokes on me because I took my youngest to a, a party, a birthday party on Sunday night. And it was just a lot of church families and church kids. And it was delightful. And so then at the end, like they were having pizza and juice boxes. And I was joking about like, Cause that, cause we, last Sunday was the second time. So we've been looking at the graphic for two weeks and I was like, you kids, you're not paying attention. Cause they were doing it the traditional way. And so my daughter did it the quote, the right way. <laughs> and then like the straw fell down into the box and she couldn't drink it. And I was like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> like, Just don't think about the implications of this. Anyway. That is hilarious. Deeply ironic. I I am doing. Um, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain this Sunday. And um, the big idea is, I was taught. I just always assumed that it means like don't cuss. Yeah, yeah. With yeah. the Lord's name, don't you know? If you stub your toe, don't shout out. Oh my God! Like that's, you know, it just for whatever reason, God does not like that. Um, only say the word God if you are talking to God or about God intentionally. Um, and that's not what it means. I mean, I'm not going to like that. No, no spoilers. Yeah, here. I'm not going to spoil it here, but it, it's actually both so much more bigger. It's so much bigger and more significant yeah. to that than that. Yeah. Um, and I, and I'm still not a person that's going to casually toss around the, the name of God because I, I, you know, but I, yeah, I, we've reduced it to a very narrow, absolutely law, a very narrow don't do this. And there is this sense, even as a kid, you're like, okay, so there's murder, there's adultery, there's, you know, graven images, there's these, you know, cataclysmic, like, don't steal. And then, you know, if you ever say the curse word GD, like, that's equivalent to um, murdering someone. So it always felt a little as if there, maybe there, maybe there should be more to this than I am 
aware of. So, and you are finally finishing up uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 11. 11. After <laughs> this will be week number six. Yes, and I would just really like the people at the Grove to just, as long as though it is legendary how long I talk, um, but uh, yes, not, uh, I do not go in depth as much as my friend Hinton. Um, and I, I mean, you're, uh, you are finishing Hebrew, that big finish of Hebrews 11 and it's been, we're starting with Jericho and Rahab. And then there's the end with the, where, where the preacher of Hebrew says, and I don't have time to talk about this person and that person, this person. And uh, so the we've been using a W every Sunday in the sermon titles. So we've we've done uh, faith worshiping, faith walking, faith waiting. Last week was faith warring uh, in the person of Moses, and this week we're looking at faith winning. And what does it mean that faith wins? And it's not always what you think. Right. That he the preacher of Hebrews ends with examples of people being martyred, and that does not seem like winning to us. That definitely seems like losing, which means we need to recalibrate what what a W looks like um, in the kingdom of God. Well, um, thank you all so much for listening. I just want to say I have the last word because Yolanda is answering a text right now, so I just don't want people to be sitting there thinking like, "Wow, that Kate, she talks all the time. She even talks about Yolanda's text." Yes, I'm talking about you, Elizabeth Bridges. I know. I'm just saying, like, people are going to be calling me out, so I'm just explaining that you had to. You're. I know you're doing something important, or else you wouldn't do it. So I'm not. I just don't want. It is very rare, and I just don't want people giving me crap about how I don't give you enough time to talk when what I'm doing is just covering the empty space. That's fair. Um, So anyway. Thanks for listening. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church Derida, you can go to their website, which is www.deridachurch.com. And you can worship with them at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And you can check out their podcast and their YouTube channels and hear messages from Yolando. Um, You can find their podcast on the Podbean website. And if you would like to know more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our YouTube channel and podcast. Um, Look for the green tree because there's a lot of groves out there, except no substitutes. And um, you go worship with us at 10 a.m. on Sunday or hop on the live stream. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week.